All right. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, what a pleasure it is to be up here at the pulpit today. I looked back over the last four weeks, and I realized I'm the fourth guy in four weeks to bring the teaching for the day. Z taught Hosea 5, Max taught chapter 6, Andrew was visiting last week and taught chapter 7, and I'm teaching on Hosea 8 tonight. Man, what an honor it is to get to follow these guys that I aspire to be like the most. I do feel bad for you all, though. Andrew said last week how unlucky the church was for having him for being an unqualified, insecure 23-year-old. Well, you guys did luck out. You have an even more unqualified and even more insecure 21-year-old today. So, however, no matter how nervous or insecure I might be to bring the teaching, there's one thing that I'm confident in, and it's the truth that we see in Scripture. I also must say, part of my nerves stem from knowing that if I say anything heretical or wrong, both Z and Max would have no problem throwing me into a jujitsu submission in a matter of seconds. So let's hope that doesn't have to happen tonight. But Z and Max, thank you for giving me the opportunity to bring the word tonight. It is truly an honor that two guys who value the word of God so highly would allow me to have a Sunday to teach it. Before we dive into chapter 8, I want to start tonight with the gospel. And the gospel in its most basic form. So we ask the question, what is the gospel? It literally means good news. But in order to have good news, there must be some bad news, right? What's the bad news? Well, we can pick up in chapter 8 and see how Israel is giving us a prime example of what the bad news is. As we look at this text, we see it's split up into four sections or four stanzas, and we can look at the thematic structure of it being the first three verses carrying the theme of the guilt of Israel. The next three verses shows the idolatry that Israel is guilty of. Verses 7 through 10 is the judgment on Israel, and verses 11 through 14 is the superstition of Israel. Verse 1 reads, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. The language of sounding the trumpet is seen throughout Scripture. Specifically, the language is used to warn of impending danger. The vulture is a metaphor for Assyria, and the house of the Lord is the nation of Israel. The, Israel has transgressed the Mosaic covenant, and technically they have transgressed all the covenants the Lord has provided, but in the time of Hosea's ministry, Israel is specifically under the Mosaic covenant. We see another great example of setting the trumpet to your lips in Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 9. You don't all need to turn with me there. Uh, we'll be doing plenty of bouncing around today, so I'll just read this one, and we'll go from there. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make them their watchmen. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall pee upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming, does not blow his trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require on the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. 
but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. It is the duty of the watchman, in this case in Ezekiel, to blow the trumpet. We see this paralleled in the narrative section of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 2, when Hosea writes, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she has put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breast. Hosea is telling his children to sound the trumpet on their mother, to warn her of her, warn her, of her whoring and of the impending danger uh, that comes with that. Verse 2 reads, To me they cry, My God, we Israel know you. In this verse, we see the utter hypocrisy of the nation of Israel. In the teaching four weeks ago on chapter 4, we learned how there is no knowledge of God in the land of Israel. Chapter 4, verse 1 reads, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Throughout the book of Hosea, we have seen the consistent theme of the Israelites constantly distorting the truth of Scripture. The source of the truth in Scripture, which means there's no real true knowledge of God in the land. This hypocrisy is also seen in a parallel in Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23, when Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is telling his people, you only say that you know me. You don't truly know these actions. You don't do these actions for God out of love for God. They are merely just actions. And if there's no true knowledge or love of God that fuels it, the words, we know you, in verse 2, are the profession of covenant loyalty to the Lord, which adds to the case of the hypocrisy for Israel's building for itself in verse 1, reading that they had transgressed the covenant, and they still say to the Lord in the language the Lord has asked them to use of their loyalty, did they know him? when in fact they know him not. And it's easy for us to think of how hypocritical, or it's easier for us to look at Israel and think of how hypocritical they are. But aren't we guilty of distorting the truth as well? We just finished Hosea 7 last week and learned all about authentic repentance and what that looks like. How often do we know that we are supposed to confess our sin so we do that, but we don't have the heart posture to actually desire to turn from that sin and return to the Lord. So we continue to fall back into that same sin over and over and over again, just like Israel did. We often know what the Lord asks of us through Scripture, but we are good at fashioning it and fitting it into our own desires and thinking that we are still honoring the Lord and following what he has asked us to do, but we've made it on our own terms, which in turn is the exact same thing Israel was guilty of doing. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. Another word for spurn is rejected. Israel has rejected the good. And what is this good? Hosea is talking about the good is the law, the gifts from God, the blessings he gives to those who are faithful to him, and the deliverance he had already provided to the, to the Israelites through the Exodus. The language of shall pursue him, or more accurately translated as to be pursued, is terminology used in covenant curses. This specific wording is to be on the losing side of war. And we know from verse 1 that Assyria is over Israel, and Israel is fighting a losing battle with them. So we see this guilt of Israel compounded in verses 1 through 3. As we turn to the next three verses, we see the idolatry that Israel is guilty of. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. To recall what we already know of the kingship of Israel, one would be in power, someone wouldn't like it, that person would be assassinated, the next king would step into the power, and the cycle just went over 
and over again. And just by way of reminder, trusting in kings or rulers for security will always lead to disappointment. Israel set up their own hierarchy and kingship, even though the Lord had given them instructions that the kings would be picked by Yahweh alone. He gives kings to nations, often through the prophets, and it was not up to the nations to decide who their king was. The words for their own destruction could also be translated as they will be destroyed, which is a direct result of idolatry according to the covenant. And they will be destroyed by Assyria in a few short years in 722 BC. I spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. The Lord has rejected the calves that we see in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 30. You guys will flip there with me. 1 Kings 12, verse 25. It's Jeroboam's golden calves. Starting in 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem on the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people will go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of his people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. They have fashioned these bull idols to have something to look at when worshiping Yahweh. The Lord rejects their calves because it is improper worship of the one true God. The question the Lord asks of how long will they be incapable of innocence is a rhetorical question. The question is used to express, express the longing of an unfilled hope. Innocence can be directly translated as hands clean of guilt. This question does not challenge God's immutability, his unchanging power, and that he didn't know how long they would be guilty for. It's a question that allows us to see into the heart of God, and that he desires innocence and obedience from his people. We saw when we were in chapter 6 of Hosea, verse 6, the Lord says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And Israel consistently fails to walk in obedience to that. One of the commentaries I was reading said, Holding steadfastly to the worship of the bull idol, they guaranteed that Yahweh could not accept their appeals. For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. How could what a craftsman made be a God? How could this handcrafted bull be worshipped? How foolish is that of Israel to think that something handcrafted is right for worship? It's so easy to look at Israel and think of them as foolish. However, couldn't we all reach in our pockets and find something that a modern-day craftsman made that we idolize? We think of how foolish Israel is to receive a blessing from God and then turn and worship Baal for the blessings that God had given them. And it is foolish, right, to receive a blessing from God and to worship something else for it. But aren't we guilty of sinning in a similar way? We often receive blessing something great happens, and instead of turning to God to give him praise, we turn to social media to celebrate or call a friend or text somebody, and we celebrate through our phone rather than praising God for the blessing. So we've seen the guilt of Israel. We've seen the idolatry of Israel. Now turning to verses 7 through 10, we see the impending judgment on Israel. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. In the, most ba- in the most basic analysis of this metaphor, 
we see that sowing the wind results in three curses. Reaping judgment, the standing grain having no heads, thus there is no yield of flour, and the strangers in the land would devour what, ye- what little yield there was. The metaphor is used to show the folly of Israel and how sweeping the consequences will be for the metaphorical seeds that the nation is sowing. Oftentimes in Scripture we see that the wind can be a metaphor for foolishness. In Ecclesiastes 1, verse 14, we see a great example. It reads, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. When the author in Ecclesiastes is getting at is the same point Hosea is making in our text, that pursuing after temporary things will always feel like chasing the wind. For the sake of a funny image, picture we're walking in Broad Ripple on the way to Condado after service, and you just see someone sprinting down the street on the other side of the street. And one of us goes and stops and is like, man, like, where are you running? Why are you sprinting? He's like, oh, I'm just chasing the wind. You think he's utterly foolish and absurd for just running after the wind. And that's what scripture is saying, chasing these worldly things is like. We see this nine times in Ecclesiastes, nine examples that this specific phrase is striving after the wind. Nine things that we see um, are temporary things that when we strive after them, they are vain, and it's like striving after the wind. We won't go through all these verses. Instead, I'll read you a list of the worldly things that Israel was striving after. Self-indulgence, finding identity and pride in what you've done. Comparison, holding all power and all authority in politics. Idolizing wisdom, being busy for the sake of being busy, and envy. I'm going to read that list again, and I want you to ask yourself, what foolishness are you sowing into right now? that the Israelites were sowing into thousands of years ago. Self-indulgence is vanity. Finding identity and pride in what you've done is vanity. Comparison is vanity. Holding all power and all authority in politics is vanity. Idolizing wisdom is vanity. Being busy for the sake of being busy is vanity. And envy is vanity. And it is all striving after the wind. So what whirlwinds Are you about to reap from the foolishness that you are currently sowing in your life? The Israelites were in the middle of destruction at the hands of Assyria. They were reaping a whirlwind of wrath from the Lord for transgressing the covenant. In Galatians 6, 7, Paul writes, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will reap from flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. One who sows to the flesh will reap from flesh corruption. We just read in Ecclesiastes all the vain things the Israelites were sowing into, and it was all foolishness. It was all absurdity. Think of the foolishness that we are currently sowing into in our lives. What potential destruction could that bring? For a young church, it's easy to sow into something like gossip. What kind of destruction could come about because of the gossip we sow into? Tarnished friendships, distrust, frustration with another person in the church. Something as simple as gossip can be such a dangerous, destructive thing, especially in the life of the church. Think of sin like lust. Even if you are rising above the temptation that lust brings, are there aspects in your life that allow yourself to entertain different ideas? Think about the TV shows you watch. Think about the music you listen to. Think about the celebrities you like to read about. Think of something like career. How much time, energy, and effort are you investing into a career that you will eventually just retire from? Be intentional with your job, but don't prioritize a career so much that it will get in the way of eternal things. What are you sowing into 
that will lead to destruction. A question I've been asked is, what are you doing now that in three years from now could disqualify you for ministry? And to put that question at an even more practical level, what are you doing now that in three years from now it could evolve into something that is harmful to future relationships, families, jobs, or even your walk with the Lord? It is so unfortunate when we see people of the faith come out and reveal a massive sin in the public eye. And the reality of that sin issue is that it didn't just happen overnight. For the man who cheats on his wife, there's a long path of small decisions he has made to end up putting himself in a position to be adulterous. There is a root to every sin that our sins stem from. And to find that root, you must examine your heart. Search and find where it loves things of the world more than things of God. Paul writes in Galatians that one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We have a choice. We see in Hosea and all throughout the Old Testament scriptures that the Israelites also had a choice. They had an opportunity to know the law and abide by it, and they failed to do so, and they reaped the whirlwind of wrath from the Lord. We also have the opportunity to choose to walk in faithful, faithful obedience, sowing seeds of the Spirit, or to continue to walk in sin, sowing seeds of the flesh. It is the responsibility of man to decide where to sow into. The Lord knows what we will choose, and he knows if we reap his blessing or his wrath. He's a God who is true to his word. However, he has given us the responsibility to either walk in faithful obedience or complete disobedience. The choice is ours, just like the choice was the Israelites as well. Proverbs 22.8 tells us that whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Sowing injustice reaps distress, it reaps misery, it warrants death. So I'm going to ask you again, what aspects of your life are you sowing into the wind? Where are you sowing foolishness? Are you working out and eating healthy because you desire to look good? Or do you do so because you desire to treat your body like a temple? Do you look forward to the next paycheck because of what you're going to buy with it? Or are you excited to use your finances to make a kingdom impact? How are you spending your time? Do you spend adequate time in Bible study and prayer? How consistently is that a question asked at men's and women's group? And how consistently do many of us answer, no, not this week? Our time is so valuable, so we must not squander it on things of this world. Keep in mind the curses Israel brought on themselves by sowing the wind. Sweeping destruction came about the nation. You don't want to keep sowing foolishness to look back in your life and find that there is no real eternal impact left because you desire to satisfy your flesh so much. What are you sowing into? Verse 8 reads, Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. Israel is in the middle of reaping destruction at the hands of Assyria. And Assyria is playing a double role here with the relationship with Israel. They're playing the tempter, tempting Israel with foreign affairs and tempting Israel to pay them tributes. And Israel caves into the temptation. And since Israel has broken the covenant with the Lord, the Lord then uses Assyria to dole out the punishment to Israel. So Assyria is playing both the tempter as well as the punishment, as the punisher for the sin. They're being swallowed up follows the motif from verse 1 that there's a vulture over the house of the Lord. They are useless to the other nations because of the whirlwind of wrath and destruction that they have received and what they are going to continue to receive. A useless vessel. And what's a useless vessel? It is something that nobody wants. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Stubborn and lonely, Israel is wandering like a wild donkey. Too stubborn to walk in obedience with the Lord, and now they have severed relations with their surrounding nations. For they are reaping what they have sowed. They have sowed injustice to the Lord. Now they are reaping the calamity of distress and misery through their destruction. Verse 9 begins a couplet that finishes in verse 13, beginning with, They have gone to Assyria, 
and a couple of finishes at the end of 13, and they will return to Egypt. We know from last week that Egypt is symbolic for bondage or captivity. And remember that this was Israel's choice to do this. And God, in his immutability, keeps his promises that they will reap destruction for sowing into things that were not of him. Why? Why do they make this choice? Because of the doctrine of original sin. They desire to wander astray. And the old hymn, Come Thou Fount, one of the lines says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to sin. We have a desire to sin. And we are prone to wandering because of the disposition of original sin. But we who are in Christ must seek him above all things and rise above our wandering and seek to obey the Lord. Verse 10 reads, Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and the princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. We see the language that God will gather them up. And this language is used in two different ways throughout Scripture. At times it's used to gather his people for protection and deliverance, and at times it is used as language for judgment. And obviously, what we know of Israel so far, uh, this is not uh, gathering them up for deliverance. This is gathering them up for judgment. Israel's independence will be taken away, and it will be subjected to the dominion of its enemies. However, this dominion is only temporary. It is not eternal or permanent dominion. So to recap these first three sections, we see Israel's guilt in the first three verses, the idolatry they are guilty of in the next three verses. And the four verses we just finished show us God's judgment on Israel. Now Hosea circles back around to view more of the sins of Israel, specifically their superstitious sins when it comes to religiosity. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. The altars were originally built with the intent of atonement for sin. Good intent when the altars were multiplied. However, in Deuteronomy 12, there's an order given in the covenant for a single sanctuary. And this multiplication of altars, which the Israelites thought was good, actually transgressed the covenant because they wanted to do it their own way and not how it was laid out for them to do. Their intent was to atone for sin, but they incorporated the Canaanite system, a pagan religion, and added it to the law God had already provided. Thus, it became a distortion of worship of the one true God, and in turn became sinful. Douglas Stewart says, The zeal for the altars was a means of dealing with sin to find forgiveness. Instead, it became a way of increasing their sins. Do you think we are guilty of this today? This is an example of Israel sowing into dead and dry religious practices without the heart disposition of a love for God. We can find this in Christianity today. How often can we be so consumed with knowing our correct theology that we disregard our love for the gospel? How easy is it to get trapped in the world of intellect and academia and strive to know a doctrine or a set of doctrinal beliefs that it consumes your identity? When the desire to grow in theological knowledge stems from just a desire to be able to articulate a well-rounded theology and it is not out of a desire to know God more and to love him more and love him better through that knowledge, we miss the mark. When your theological growth is pursued to be able to tell other people how they are wrong and not pursued to be in better relationship with the Lord, we miss the mark. It is so easy to point fingers at the other side of the spectrum and critique people with bad theology or with no theology, but when you are all theology and no love for the gospel, it is just as slippery of a slope. It takes something great and glorifying to God and makes it sinful. It is sowing into a dead and dry religion if it isn't done out of love for the Lord. It is sin. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. The Israelites were ignorant to the laws of Yahweh. The laws have become foreign to the Israelites. 
The interesting thing about this is we have a different responsibility than the Israelites do in the context of this verse. The majority of Israel was an illiterate nation. It was up to the religious leaders to set the standard, to uphold, and to protect the law. As we've seen throughout Hosea, the religious leaders failed to do their jobs well, and they distorted the truth. Now, the people that look to the leaders of Israel and the culture for how to live in accordance with the law don't even know the truth of the law. Deuteronomy 32.16 is a stark contrast to this verse in Hosea. The verse reads, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. At the time, these gods were strange. They were false gods, and they were idols, and they were foreign to the nation of Israel. And now it is Yahweh and his laws that are foreign to the nation. It sounds very similar to the country that we live in. Here's how we differ from the Israelites in this case. We have the law. We have the 66 books in the canon that show us how to walk in faithful obedience with the Lord. It's our responsibility to know what his word says and to love his word and to cherish his word. This is the hypocrisy of the Christian church. Many professing Christians claim to know God, to understand the gospel, and to have a relationship with the Lord, and the Bible is on the shelf collecting dust. The Lord has gifted us with his word. We live in a nation that at least currently does not persecute Christians for reading the Bible. We have complete freedom to read, to sit in, and to cherish the word of God, and we have the responsibility to do so. And we often can't make time to even read one chapter a day. The gospel is the greatest love letter ever written, and many professing Christians don't even open it. So imagine this. You're in elementary school, and the guy you like or the girl you like writes you a love letter, passes the note to their friend, their friend passes it to you, and you take it and you put it in your pocket, and then you see this person in recess, and they come up to you, and they're like, did you read the note? Did you read the note? And you're like, nope, it's in my pocket, though. You just absolutely miss the point of what the letter was for. And when we don't read our Bibles, we miss out on the greatest love ever poured out, the greatest mercy ever shown, and the most amazing gift of grace. It is our responsibility. We are not an oppressed religion in the United States. We have complete freedom to privately and publicly seek the Lord here. It is our responsibility to know his word and to walk in obedience to what it says. What are you sowing into? Do you spend time with the Lord soaking in his word and in prayer? Or are you squandering, squandering an opportunity to read the best news that you could ever receive? The first half of verse 13 says, As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice me and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Israel's confidence was not rested in the Lord, but in the sacrificial offering system. Israel desired to put in the proper practices to get the desired results. Does this sound familiar? How many works-based religions are there today? all aspiring to do enough good deeds or avoid enough wrong and evil things to eventually one day be judged if their deeds or actions were good enough. We see an example of a sacrificial offering in Genesis with Cain and Abel. If you all flip with me to Genesis 4, we'll read this passage together. This is 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought for the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We see that the Lord has accepted Abel's offering, but rejected Cain's. Why? Cain offered what he wanted to the Lord, not what the Lord had asked for. 
The Lord rejected it because it was on Cain's terms, not the terms of the Lord. This is often a scenario when the question is asked, well, at least Cain offered something to the Lord. Why would God not accept an offering from him? And we can find that answer in places we've already been today in Hosea 6.6. The Lord desires steadfast love and not sacrifice. The sacrifices of Israel could not be accepted just like Cain's wasn't accepted because they were unrepentant people corrupted by their guiltiness and sin. Andrew spent all of last week unpacking this theology of authentic repentance that we see in chapter 7 of Hosea. Turning from your sin and from your flesh and turning to the Lord. It begins at the heart level. If the disposition of your heart is a desire to love the Lord and be in right relationship with him, then there will be a desire to also be obedient to the laws the Lord has given us. There's a twofold heresy that we can unpack based off this concept. The first heresy is that your works can earn your salvation. We know that we are sinners. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So if we have earned anything in this life, it is death. That is the first heresy, that your works can earn your salvation. The second heresy is that all we need is faith, and we are saved. As long as I pray the sinner's prayer one time, I'm good to go. As long as I believe, I don't need to have any good works because it's just faith, right? That is also a heresy because we know we are saved by saving faith. What then is saving faith? Saving faith begins at the heart level. Beginning with true repentance and recognition of one's own depravity, we turn back to the Lord because we love him and we desire to be with him. And through that love for the Lord, we also desire to be faithful, faithfully obedient to what he has called us to in this life, knowing his word, loving his gospel, and sharing it with all people. The Lord has not accepted these sacrifices because they are done out of practice, not out of love. He desires us to love him and be obedient to his word out of that love. The second part of verse 13 reads, Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt. To see the significance of this verse, we look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, and it reads, The Lord passed passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The significance of this cross-reference is the language specifically used in verse 7, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We see that that language in verse 13, now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. This is a prime example of God's immutability through showing his promises and keeping true to them. Israel continued to sow seeds of foolishness, and God promised that the iniquity would fall on their future generations. In this verse, he's fulfilling his promise by visiting the iniquity on Israel and punishing their sins at the hands of Assyria. They shall return to Egypt, finishes the couple that we saw begin in verse 9, for they have gone up to Assyria. And again, Egypt is symbolic of bondage and captivity, the punishment for covenant unfaithfulness from the Israelites. Verse 14 reads, For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. And verse 14, in short, is covenant judgment. The second half of verse 14 summarizes what Deuteronomy 32, verses 15 through 18 predicts, that they stir him to jealousy, they sacrifice to demons, and they forgot the God that gave them birth, just as Israel had done. The addition of Judah in this verse was a reminder that the southern kingdom was guilty of transgressing the covenant as well. 
This verse adds evidence to the initial charge of the transgressed covenant that we see in verse 1. All the sins seen in this final section are all of the same theme. A lack of love for God, which resulted in a dead, dry religion, not centered on a love for the Lord. Now looking back over this chapter, I think we all know what the answer to my very first question is. If there is good news in the gospel, what must the bad news be? The bad news is that we are similar to the Israelites in many, many ways. The bad news is that we are sinners. We have transgressed the covenant. We have sowed into foolishness, and we have reaped consequences for those sins in our lives. We are completely and utterly depraved, unable to wholly love God as a result of original sin. We are deserving of a wrathful punishment from a righteous God, but that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of this Bible. This is the greatest love letter ever written. The beauty is that God held true to his part of the covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and with David, and man was never able to uphold his end of the covenant. As I quoted Romans 6.23 earlier, the wages of sin is death, but there's more to the verse. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus, who while we were still sinners died for us, who though, he was born in the, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the good news. We find laid out all throughout Paul's letters an example to follow in knowing the truth of Scripture, loving the Lord, and being obedient to him. Paul tells us how to sow seeds of the Spirit— It is only when sowing seeds of the Spirit that we will reap eternal life. The bad news is there is punishment for sin. The good news is we have a living living hope in Christ because he has purchased our sin and taken our place on the cross that we rightfully deserve. We've earned death, but Christ stood in our place, not only bearing the burden of our sins, but truly dying the death that we are all deserving of dying. Is that not real love? Is that not the good news? For all of humanity, God's people have been incapable of, of keeping his law. He even asks, how long, how long will his people be incapable of innocence? And the answer is, until Christ returns again. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So now what? We know the gospel. We know the living hope that we have in Jesus. We know he has purchased us at great cost. What do we do now? First, to those of you who are not living a lifestyle of authentic repentance, to those of you that sow the wind, I must warn you, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, that the word of cross is foolish, or it is folly to those who are headed to destruction, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Is the cross foolish to you? Is this gospel I've talked about today foolish to you? Paul warns that those who think so will perish. My hope is that you hear the good news, you hear the gospel, and you repent. 
You turn from your sins and turn to the Lord. A genuine relationship with the Lord is your only hope for salvation. It is nothing you can work your way to. It can only be obtained through Christ Jesus our Lord. So my hope for you today, if you have considered the cross foolish in the past, repent from that and turn to the Lord. Now for those who are in Christ, I must return to the pressing question of what are you sowing? Are you sowing seeds of the Spirit or are you sowing seeds of the flesh? In Matthew 25, Jesus shares the parable of the talents. In short, one person was entrusted five talents and he made five talents more. One person was given two talents, he made two talents more. One person was given one talent and he buried in the ground until the master returned. Those who had returned on, the ta- on their talents were told, well done, good and faithful servant. The one who squandered his talent had no return and was cast out into outer darkness. We have the responsibility as children of God. We are given gifts and talents. We need to sow those to reap the glory of God. We know that the Lord desires our steadfast love, not just our actions, but through our steadfast love for him, we shall desire to walk in obedience according to his word. The first application point to know if you are sowing faithfulness or not is to know God's word, to sit in his word, to soak in his word. You can't know how to be obedient if you don't know the scriptures. There's an old pastor named John Bunyan, and people would say that if you were to cut him open, he would bleed Bible. Make that your goal. Be so saturated in the word that you can't help but talk about it, to think about it, and to love it all the more. A second point of application would be to surround yourself with people who desire to know and love the Lord more and more every day and to be in accountability with them. Often our pride doesn't allow ourselves to see certain sins in our life. It is easy for us to overlook different things or to blow them off thinking they are no big deal. You need to warn people in your life who are like Hosea to Israel. You need, to, or you need people in your life who are like Hosea to Israel. You need people to sound the trumpet to warn you of the impending danger in your life. If you are sowing the wind, you are fixing to reap the whirlwind. Be so cautious of that and have the people in your life holding you accountable to sowing seeds of the Spirit. My third piece of practical application is to spend time in prayer. Ask the Lord to show you where you are sowing in the wind and also ask him to show you where you are sowing seeds of the Spirit. Examine yourself daily. Seek the Lord in prayer, asking to sanctify you, to continue to strengthen the Spirit inside of you, to show you ways in your life that you can faithfully sow into, and to also show you places in your life that you need to completely pull away from. Seek all this with a heart to return to the Lord in authentic repentance. If you seek to stop your foolishness out of a place of only sacrifice to the Lord, that isn't the right heart disposition. Seek to align your heart with his and to love him so much that you desire to be faithfully obedient to him. And I know this is a simple application. If you've been a Christian for any number of time, I'm sure you've heard these points of application before. Sure, sure. Yeah, I should pray more. I should read my Bible more. I should have people holding me accountable. And you've all heard it. But man, there is never enough of that. If you look at all the giants of the faith, they are steeped in scripture reading and are steeped in prayer. Those who are in Christ have been given talents. Align your heart with the Lord through prayer and scripture reading and have people in your life to challenge you in the faith. It's simple, but it'll help you grow to love the Lord with the steadfast love that he asks of us. Sow seeds of the Spirit and you will reap eternal life. That's the good news. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you today for your gospel, for the good news that it is and that you have saved us from our sins, from our transgressions, Lord. We know that we are depraved, and we know that we are unable to wholly love you, um, but it is the best gift of grace to know that if we are in you, 
we get to reap the salvation. Lord, I pray as a church, we can see where we are sowing into foolishness and we can turn from that and we can repent from that and turn to sowing seeds of the Spirit, Lord. We desire to know you more. We desire to love you more. We desire to grow in you daily, Lord. I pray that we continue to sow seeds of the Spirit and to continue to know and love you, Lord. We praise you for your word. We praise you for the truth of your word. We thank you for tonight. In your name we pray. Amen.